A few there, saints. Matthew chapter 26. Let's go before the Lord and bow our hands. Father, we know that it was planned before the foundation of the world, before you created anything. You had us in mind and you had our salvation, Lord, all planned. We're so thankful, Lord, that you, even then, so desired intimacy with us, a relationship with us, that you would prepare to become a man and go to the cross and die. And because of that, we have life and this promise, this inheritance, Lord. And we're just grateful, truly grateful. We do pray that you would instruct us, that you would teach us as we're in this chapter now and dealing with the, the coming crucifixion, that you would show us, Lord, teach us your heart. Teach us what you have for us in this time. Father, tonight, simply give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. 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 All right, Matthew chapter 26. I want to kind of give you a little bit of a, a brief you know, outline as we go through this. Now, we're not going to cover the whole chapter, so breathe easy. We're, we're, we're not going to get to the whole thing. We'll get a, a, a chunk of it. Um, but understand that what we're seeing here is that... Um, it opens up in the first verse, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is a Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's how it opens up. And for the last couple of chapters, we've been dealing with the, the Lord answering the, the questions that his disciples had asked him about, you know, when, what's, when will these things be? What's the sign of your coming? And, and the end of the age. And we've gone through and the Lord has given this beautiful understanding of his heart and the preparation for his coming. And now what happens is he moves up the chain. Not necessarily the preparation for his coming, but now the preparation for his death. How do people prepare for his death? And we're going to see here how the Lord is preparing his disciples initially by telling them about his death. And then we're going to see how the chief priests and, and those in verse 4, they're plotting to take Jesus by trickery. So they're plotting for his death. And then, uh, amazingly, then we have this woman who anoints Jesus. We have Mary. And, and what we see is what she's doing is in verse 12, it says, In pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. You understand everyone's in preparation of his death, preparation for his death. And, and I think what happens is that there's things we can take from that and then things that we can move forward in that. And, and so with all this preparation for his death, and immediately what happens is death is, is when it comes to this chapter, the first thing about his death is Jesus is predicting. Now he's done it before, but this is the first time that he actually says that I'm going to be crucified. First time that he says, I'm going to the cross. I will be going to the cross and I will be hanging upon a tree. And, and that is where I'm going to die. So he's been talking about, I'm going to give over the Gentiles and I'll, they'll, you know, I'm, I'm, they're going to kill me. But here he actually is very specific speaking about the crucifixion. 
And so initially when it opens up, it says, Now it came to pass, verse 1 again, when Jesus had finished all these things, that he said to his disciples. He's gone through, he's speaking to his disciples, and he lets them know now that in just a couple of days there's going to be the Passover. And he says, Now after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. As he points out his, his death, it's this incredible thing how the Lord is, is making this prophetic term. And, and I think it's important to know that as God realizes this is the path, this is what I'm going to go through, and I am going to the cross, and I am going to die. What's interesting is in the next three verses where you have the leaders plotting for his death, it says, Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who is called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. Now notice verse 5, and this is where it's key. But they said in verse 5, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So what happens is this, is they have a whole idea of, we want to put Jesus to death, but not during the Passover. Well, there goes the plots of men. Um, and I find it interesting that here as the leaders are plotting the death, understand that with the death of, of the Lord, it's not going to be hurried, it's not going to be delayed. And all of the schemings and all the plottings and all this, this you know, wranglings of these religious leaders is not going to change the fact that God has a plan. And I'll tell you what, I'm encouraged by that. And because what happens is this. Take that into what our, our nation panicked over last year when they were dealing with the COVID. People locking themselves up in masks and sanitizers and, and you know, um, everything happening. It was to do what? To make sure that you wouldn't die. That was the whole thing. And, and I find it interesting and I find it comforting that no matter what these religious leaders were plotting, they, they wanted to kill him a long time ago, but they couldn't. Every time Jesus just went out from among them, it, just, it wasn't happening. Jesus always said, my time has not yet come. My time has not come. Now it's his time. And now they're like, oh, we can't do it now. Now instead of rushing it where we couldn't do it, now we're trying to delay it. And understand, God has a timeline. And, and I'll tell you, I'm comforted the fact that he has a timeline about my death too. And, and there isn't a, a COVID or a disease or anything that's going to hurry and rush it. And nothing's going to delay it. And so in the same way as God had a plan for Jesus and, and, and his finishing his ministry, I'm blessed that he has a plan for me in the, the finishing of my ministry. And nothing's going to rush it. Nothing's going to hinder it. Nothing's going to stop it. And I'm so grateful that he has a plan. And I want to be able to surrender to that plan. I don't always know what it is. The Lord knew what it was. And, and it's a good thing because so often when we know what God's plan is, after the fact, we said, if I would have known that was your plan, I would have never made that prayer. I never wanted that. I would have never gone in in this direction. And so, but the Lord knows. And he's making this prophetic 
word to his, his death where he says in verse 2, you know that after two days is the Passover. And although the religious leaders in verse 5 are saying not during the feast, Jesus is saying it's going to be during the feast. And I want you to see at this point who's in control. And it's a beautiful thing to see that here the Lord, as he steps into this chapter, has already said, listen, I'm in control of everything that's going to happen. You're saying, when is this going to be? I got a perfect timeline for that. When is it going to be the end time? I got a perfect timeline for that. When is it going to be the sign of your coming? I got a perfect timeline for that. And now he says here, still telling them I'm in control, I have a timeline during the Passover, two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And so at this point now, they come to an understanding that he is going to die, but he's not going to be stoned. He's not going to have a heart attack. He knows the way he's going to die, which tells me he's absolutely in control of this. The fact that he's in control of this situation tells me that he's in control of my life. And I don't have to worry about COVIDs or anything else coming down the pipe. I know that nothing's going to hurry my death. Nothing's going to delay my death. It's going to be according to his timeline. And so when he says, you know, that he's going to be delivered to be crucified, we see here now it's the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. So you have these religious leaders. And what's interesting is these are the people who are supposed to do what? Supposed to be the ones to draw the people to God. These are the ones who are supposed to be the light, the salt. They're the ones who are teachers. And yet we see here they're plotting to take Jesus by trickery and to kill him. And this is their, their, their heart. that They want to, at this point, they are preparing for his death. But not simply preparing like verse 12, where here Mary goes and she pours out that fragrant oil. She did it for his burial. She's already worshiping, you know, because he's going to die. And so she's already dealing with that aspect. So she's preparing too. But what's interesting is, that the religious leaders are not just preparing for his death, but they're preparing to put him to death. These are the religious leaders. Now it does say, and I, I think it's interesting, and I want to give you a little bit of clarification here, because it does say that they hear the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest. And at this point, they're assembling at the high priest who is called Caiaphas. Now, for those of you that are students of the word, you'll realize that, yes, Caiaphas is a high priest, but there is another high priest on the scene. There is a passage in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, and it simply declares this. After it talks about here that the ministry of John the Baptist, it says, verse 2 of Luke chapter 3, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So we see here that as you know, the, the scriptures open up, we see that there are two high priests, according to Luke. You have one high priest who is Annas, 
one high priest who is Caiaphas. Now, in John chapter 18, it gives us a little bit more clarification to the whole issue of the high priest. Let me read just this portion to you. In verse 13 and 14, it makes this statement. When they're taking Jesus away, and they're going to bring him before Annas, the first high priest. So in verse 13, they led him away to Annas first. And he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one that one man should die for the people. So we see here that this is that heart, this is that understanding where you have Annas, and he now sends him to he was um, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And then it says in verse 24 of John 18, then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So we see that here you have a father-in-law, son-in-law, and both of them are high priests. When Rome began to take over Jerusalem, what they had done was this. They had installed a political high priest. That would be Caiaphas. There was a high priest of the people, Annas, and then as Rome went through and said, you know, you're, you're not going to be the high priest that we're dealing with. Um, we're going to install our own. And then through this political wrangling, then Annas was able through um, that to have his son-in-law, Caiaphas, to become high priest. Why do I spend some time on this? One is this, that Caiaphas would not necessarily be more of that spiritual high priest. He's more of a political high priest. He's the one that wants to be politically correct and politically expedient. And, and I don't know if you know anything about politics, but what happens a lot in, at times in politics is this, that they'll lift their finger and they'll figure out which way the wind is blowing and that's the direction that they go. What do the people want? What do the people want? What is the majority? What gives me the best polling numbers? What makes me look best before the people? And so that's what they're looking for. And that's what Caiaphas was as the high priest. He was more of a political than a spiritual high priest. And so we're seeing here, knowing that is the foundation of verse 3, now you understand when Caiaphas comes, it was expedient that one man should die than for the people. At this point, the people were, their hearts were turning back to God. And as people were turning back to God, they were very zealous. Now, they weren't zealous for the law. They were zealous for God. And so through that, within the zealousness, they were concerned that the people would now say, we're not going to serve Rome and the Caesar is God. We're serving God. And so because what Jesus was doing and as they had this political power and the power that Rome gave them, they didn't want to give up that power. But Jesus was drawing all of the people to himself and was drawing them away from them. So like, oh my goodness, where's the ones that should be having this power? That We should be the one controlling all the people. And here we have this guy, this itinerant rabbi who's wandering around, who has nothing all the people are now flocking to him. We've got to deal with this guy because he's making us look bad. And he's now teaching the people. He's calling us out for our hypocrisies. And, and all the people used to look at us in ooh and awe. 
and used to applaud us and, and be, you know, in a sense, lifting us up as they would see us because they were in awe of us and in wonder of us. And now they, because of this guy's teaching, they're saying, you guys are kind of hypocritical. Where we're losing our power base. And so, what did they do? Well, in verse 4, they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. It's amazing that here, the what they wanted was, I do not want this man, Jesus Christ, ruling over us. I don't want this man, Jesus Christ, and as he reveals the heart of God, i got to get rid of that. Now, rather than just hearing his words, saying, is this truth or is it not truth, and if it is truth, repenting, they didn't want to repent of their behaviors. In other words, I want to just change the outward. I don't want to change the inward. And if you are creating this chaos on the outward, let me just get rid of you rather than trying to deal with the chaos that's in my own heart. I'm at peace with it. That's what I want. And so they're plotting now to take Jesus. And understand, it's all the religious elites. It's the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people, and the high priest. They're all coming together, and they are united in one cause. How can we take Jesus by trickery and kill him? In other words, it's not necessary. It's not needed. We can't do it rightly because he's not doing anything deserving of death. But how can we make it so that we can kill him? But now they have this plot involved in taking Jesus and killing him. But verse 5, they make this statement, not during the feast, let there be an uproar among the people. So we do want to kill Jesus, but we want to do it kind of on the down low, where people aren't aware of what we're doing or how we're doing it. So we want to make sure that it's not during the feast. And so, although they didn't want to do it during the feast, guess what? God had a plan, and they wound up doing it during the feast. And so, as we're seeing here, they are now wanting to take Jesus and, and slay him. And what's unique is this. At this point, point where Matthew is recounting the whole understanding of these religious leaders and what they were doing in preparation for Jesus' death, in other words, plotting for it, Matthew is reminded of, event, of, of an event that took place not that long ago, um, and so we see here in verse 8 or verse 6, when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now, notice he didn't say, and then Jesus. It says, and when. Do you understand there's a difference? It's not the next event that took place where Jesus said in two days is the Passover, I want to be crucified. And then he says, here's the chief priest, and they were plotting. And then Jesus was in Bethany. That's not what it says. It just said when Jesus was in Bethany. So what he's doing is this. He's actually doing what's known as a flashback, where, where here was an event, but it dealt with a subject matter. And the subject matter he's dealing with, of course, is the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? In the Gospel of John, and I want to read to you in John chapter 12, 
And I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I'm going to read it all the way down to verse 8. And there's going to be clarification to this. In John chapter 12, same situation, but a little bit more better detail. In John chapter 12, verse 1, it makes this statement, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, and whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary, verse 3, took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to take what was put into it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept, note this, she has kept this for the day of my burial. So now we see a couple of events that will help us, um, details within this event that will help us understand it. One, it was six days before the Passover, not two. And so note this, what Matthew is doing is he says, I'm having this flashback because we're dealing about preparation for Jesus' death. He said, my preparation is to inform you what is going on. I know what's going on. I'm in control of what's going on. It's going to happen just as God planned it. Just as it's always been planned, I'm going to go and I'm going to be crucified. The religious leaders in dealing with the preparation for his death are they're preparing to kill him, to put him to death. And so what Matthew does is he's now focusing on this preparation and he's reminded of something that took place in Bethany with Mary and it points out that Judas was the one who said, why was this wasted? With that as your foundation, let's now go through and read this portion as Matthew declares it. It says in verse 6, And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, Matthew gives us a little more information. They were not at the house of Lazarus. They were at the house of a man named Simon who was a leper. Now, I'm going to make this statement. He was a leper, and now he's not at the time of giving you know, this feast at his house. If he was a leper, he wouldn't be inviting people into his house. It would be like, I have COVID, come and eat with me. No, you don't do that. So, so he's already been healed of his leprosy. Now, we've already looked at leprosy and realized there was a cure that was set up for leprosy in the Old Testament. But amazingly, there had never been one cured of leprosy in the dictates of Scripture until Jesus came on the scene. So there are a lot of um, scholars who do believe that this Simon, who was a leper, 
was healed of his leprosy by Jesus. And I wouldn't disagree with that. I wouldn't be emphatic about it, but I wouldn't disagree. So here we see Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. <clears throat> if that's the case that Jesus did heal him, I can understand why he would be there. And then what Matthew declares is a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. So at this point, we now see that here is this oil. We know according to John's gospel that it was you know, Mary who came and poured out the oil. And where John makes that statement, the whole house, the whole house was filled with the fragrance of oil. It's interesting that worship does that. You know, worship just fills the house with the fragrance. And uniquely so, there's a passage, and I wanted to share it with you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. I'm just going to read it to you. You're, you're aware of it. We've read it before, but I think it's just important to kind of look to it again. It says this, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. It's interesting that when you have this kind of worship, that if you're familiar, there's a, a passage that some people believe is, is Mary again, um, I'm not quite so sure. I won't, you know, if you want to hold on to that thought, you can. If you want to believe it's a different woman, that's fine as well. But in Luke chapter 7, it talks about another woman who, you know, went into the house of a man by the name of Simon again. And, you know, she was a sinner. And Simon said, boy, if you only knew what kind of woman this was. And, you know, this Simon was a Pharisee. But here, when she would cry and her tears would be on his face and he, he, she'd wipe the, the tears off with her hair and then she anointed him, his feet, with the fragrance of oil. And so she, as she does, she's taking on this fragrance too. And I do believe that this is what's happening. When you have this kind of worship that goes on, it fills the house it just and everyone who's a part of it. So in verse 7, when Matthew says there's a woman who came to him having an alabaster flask, it doesn't say that she, she came and she sat and she wept and she did those things. It said that here's, here's Mary, as John says, she comes to him and she has this alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil. It's interesting that this alabaster flask or this alabaster box is, is one where you have this oil and most scholars believe that it would be for a dowry. Most believe that it would be something for like a, a semi-retirement, that you have something that, that is that costly. Now keep in mind that with this flask of oil, that the way that it was designed at that time is it would be completely encased in glass. And so in order to get it, you have to break it 
and then there's no plug for it. You're using it for here, so it's a cost. And you would use it to pour into smaller bottles, but she just brings this flask, this entire flask, and then pours it over the head. Now, we do know that according to John's Gospel, that it was worth 300 denarii. So, you know, we've talked about what a denarii is before. It's a day's wage for um, a day's work. And so, basically, you're looking at almost a year's income. This is what she does in one moment, a whole year's income, and just pours it on Jesus. That this entire year income, that value, she just gives it in one instance as a form of worship, which is absolutely incredible. So here this woman comes in, verse 7, having an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. So Jesus is sitting at the table. She comes and she pours it, just anoints him. The whole house is now filled with this fragrance. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Now, John is very clear to point out this was Judas Iscariot. And Judas is looking at this worship and saying, oh my goodness, what a waste. Now, what's interesting is this. When Jesus is there and he says, I'm about to go to, you know, be crucified. We understand that that's what? Oh, what worth is that? We look at the blood of Jesus. We look at the death of Jesus and we see this what? A thing of worth, a thing of value, a thing to be treasured above all other things. Because I realize that, you know, this is the most valuable thing that has ever been. The blood of God. And we know that that blood is able to take away the sins of the world. Value, worth. And the religious leaders would look at Jesus and the shedding of his blood and think of it as worthless. And this woman would come and she would see Jesus. And Jesus makes that statement. She's done this for my burial in verse 12. She sees this as a thing of worth. I'm, I'm honoring what you are going to be doing. And Jesus makes this statement, she did it for my burial. And there's debate that goes on among scholars is, did Mary know she was doing this for her burial? Um, Jesus said she did it. And I would think that I would lean towards, yes, she knew. Now, it's interesting that Jesus has told his disciples, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, but don't worry, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to be raised again. It's all right. Mary got it. And I believe that what happens is whenever you see Mary, Mary is unique among all other people in the scriptures because when she was with the Lord, Martha was serving and serving and serving, and where was Mary? At his feet. Her brother Lazarus dies. She runs out and she falls down at Jesus' feet. She just makes her home there. She's there. Her whole life becomes just sitting at his feet and being at his feet and worshiping. And I think that when you have that kind of closeness and intimacy with Jesus, she gets it. You have, you have these disciples. They don't get it. She gets it. She knew. And so she 
comes and she takes this flask in front of everyone that's there, all the disciples, and she then you know, pours it over his head, and the disciples see it, and they're indignant. Now, we know that it's one that's really indignant because he's like, wait a second, I could use that to buy some falafels. What are you doing pouring it over his head? And so, you know, as, as he's indignant, the other ones are like, oh, yeah, yeah, that is a waste. Why would you do that? You could give it to the poor. Well, here, verse 8, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant and said, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. So we realize that the value of it was, you know, almost a year's wage. And he says, why didn't you give it to the poor? And, you know, who's more needy than poor me? I could really use this. And so Jesus now, aware of it, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? I find it interesting that, have you ever noticed how non-believers look at what we do as an act of worship and they say, why are you wasting your time? Why are you wasting your energy? Why are you wasting your money? Why do you waste? And they, they see what we do in our worship to Jesus Christ because of his death, which redeemed us. They see our worship as a waste. And they, they can't understand it. They see our worship in every form as worthless. You, you, you could be doing this, and you could be doing this, and you could be having money, and you could be doing all these other things, and why do you waste your time and waste your service and, and waste your money? Why do you do that? And Jesus says, why are you troubling them? I love how Jesus literally, although no one understands this woman's worship in its, sincerity, in, in its sincerity and prophecy, they don't understand it. They see it as an outward act, and they only see it in the practical sense, and they see it as a waste. They don't understand the true value that happens spiritually. And I want to tell you that what happens is this. In verse 13, he says, Surely I say to you that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial for her. She took basically one year's income, poured it over the head of Jesus as an act of worship, declaring that this is your burial. Now I'm going to do this now because you're not going to stay buried long. I understand what you're going to do. We're going to do it here. And no one understood. But beautifully what we see is this. Although she took this one costly alabaster flask, poured it over his head in that instant, make no mistake, there was this angel somewhere in heaven going, oh, reward, reward, reward. That is going to be eternal. And wherever this event is declared through the scripture, that reward will be eternal. We understand this is her worship. This is her understanding that she knew more than all these other men, more than Lazarus, more than the disciples, more than Simon um, the, the leper, more than all these people, Mary knew. Martha still served, 
Mary said, I'm going to anoint my Lord. And so when, they, when the, the disciples were saying, what a waste, Jesus was saying, oh, no, you don't understand the worth. You don't understand what she's doing. This is worship. And so he said, why do you trouble the woman? She has done a good work for me. Now, what I love is this. There's a, a we say she's done a good work um, for me. Another translation could be she's done a good work to me. And I like that better. Now, within the context of the, the Greek, you could use it either or. But I want to read to you how the Amplified Version reads this portion. Where he said, she's done a good work for me. The Amplified Version said, she has done a noble, praiseworthy, and beautiful thing to me. And I do believe the worship was not for him, it was to him. And I think that's usually the key to the sincerity of worship. So often, people want to worship and do things for the Lord and for the Lord and for the Lord. And it's almost like, you know, here's a reward rather than just doing it to the Lord. This is for you, Jesus, and only for you. If anyone else benefits, praise God, but I'm doing this to you. And if we have that understanding, when you look at your ministries and you do it to the Lord... Everything begins to change. Now, when I go through and I do premarital counseling, I, I try to share that what the whole issue of the ministry of marriage is, is this. That when a husband ministers to his wife, he's not doing it for her. He's doing it to the Lord. In other words... What you've called me in my role as a husband, when I do this to my wife, I'm doing it basically to you because you're the one that died, you're the one that given me life, and I'm responding to you. And if this is what you've given me to do in this ministry of marriage to this your daughter, I want to do this. And I don't get bored of doing it or tired of it, like, oh, I got to do this again. Why? Because I'm always doing it to him. And the same way as, as the wife, when you're ministering to your husband and the roles that the, um, the, the Spirit dictates through the Word of God, as you minister to Him, He's the benefit of it, but you're really doing it unto the Lord. You're doing it because Jesus died for you. Jesus is the one who's given you life. And now He's saying, you as my child... In this ministry of marriage, here's how you can glorify me. And you do it. And it changes everything when you do it to the Lord versus for the Lord. Because when you do it for the Lord, it's like, oh, I've done it again, I've done it again, I've done it again. It's like, it's, you do it to the Lord and you have Him and His work completely in the frontal area of your mind. And it's all done in love. It's all done in worship. This is done to you, not for you, but to you. You're my focal point. And, and as that becomes the, the motivation, the deeds, everything becomes a greater sincerity in worship. And so when he tells them, leave this woman alone. So when Jesus was aware of it, he said, why do you trouble the woman? Why are you giving her a hard time? She has done a good work for me or a good work to me for the poor for you have the poor with you always but me you do not have always 
it's interesting that what the Lord begins to do is He's not saying don't minister to the poor. So don't, don't make that mistake. He's saying, listen, you're always going to have the poor. And you'll always have an opportunity to minister to the poor. Right now is a very narrow window in this ministry to me. And he's making this statement. He says that the poor are always going to be there. Um, right now there's an, almost an urgency in this worship, an urgency in this act. And I don't want to put this act off to say, oh, well, let's, let's wait on this and not give to the Lord this alabaster flask. I want to save it and give it to the poor. Saying, no, there's an urgency here. And there's certain times in our ministry and our worship that I think it's important when the Lord and the Holy Spirit speaks to us, don't put it off. <coughs> People are going to tell you, well, just put it off, put it off, put it off. You know, that saying, you know, why do it today when you can put it off till tomorrow? And why not? If you can take it easy today and cruise today. You can always do it tomorrow. Do it another time. And so what happens is there's this mindset of don't put off to tomorrow the urgency of what God is placing upon your heart today. Now, of course, that's true with what? Salvation. I mean, how true is that? Don't, don't say, well, I'll, I'll receive the Lord in a few more years, and I just want to enjoy my life and party some more, and then I'll receive, and I'll ask Jesus into my heart, and then I'll straighten up. Or I'll wait till I get married, and then I'll straighten up. Or I'll wait till this, and then I'll straighten up. And, and God says, don't wait. There's some things you don't want to put off to later. And so it's interesting where he says, the poor you're always going to have. Don't use this as an excuse of what you're going to do tomorrow to hinder an urgency of acting in worship today. And so keep in mind that you're always going to say, well, there, there's going to be another time and there's going to be you know, uh, another day where I could do this. And sometimes the Holy Spirit can say, don't put this off. Don't put it off on another time. Don't put it off on another day. There's an urgency of the worship. And although people are going to misunderstand you, people aren't going to get what you're doing. You're going to realize that I need to act on this. And yeah, because of the urgency, there's going to be a cost. Because of the urgency, there's going to be people that won't understand. But I know it's of God and I know I need to act now and don't put it off. And maybe you've experienced certain things like that in your own life where the Spirit is just prompting you and prompting you and prompting you and says, don't put it off, don't put it off, don't put it off. And so maybe there have been times where the Spirit has been telling you, you need to tell a coworker about your relationship with me. And you're like, oh, I'll wait for the time to be right. Because it could be kind of costly for my reputation. It'd be kind of costly in this. And so we put these things off. I'll, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. And all of a sudden we begin to see here is that don't put certain things off. If God puts it upon your heart to say, I need you to talk to your coworker. I need you to talk to a friend. I need you to talk to a family member about something that, you know, about me and your relationship about salvation. Be careful that you don't think, oh, I'll, I'll do it down the road. 
Because there comes certain times in our lives where here Jesus is actually telling the people what she did here in this urgency was right. What she did in her worship was needed and necessary. And so he said, she's done this good work. The poor you're always going to have with you, but me you do not always have. So realize, he's saying, you don't always have the opportunity that God is giving to you now. So when God opens that door and he says, go tell your coworker, like, I'll get around to it. Well, what happens if your coworker, you know, dies? What happens if your coworker gets fired? What happens if they get another job? Oh, man. You know, well, I, the next coworker you put it upon. So keep in mind, and I think it's important, it's a good biblical principle for us to understand that when God talks to us, be careful that you don't put these things off. When God told Abraham, I want you to come to the land I'm going to show you, he put it off. He sort of camped in, in a, you know, in between. And God says, wait, let's, let's, let's keep moving. Keep moving. We're, we're, you got you to get down where I called you to be. And so be careful that you don't put things off um, when God puts it upon your heart. Here's a need. And, and there's an urgency to this. And so I just love the heart of that where he says in verse 11, for you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. For, verse 12, in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. So she counts this cost in worship. Now she counts this cost in worship. She realizes here is, I need to do this in preparation for his death may not have an opportunity again, but I do know that this is where I'm called to be and, and I'm, I'm making a stand right here as far as what it is. So what Matthew has done is he's made this recollection to when all of a sudden he is reminded Jesus talked about, yes, I'm going to be crucified. He's reminded that the religious leaders are now plotting against him. And then he was recalling back just a few days ago, six days before the Passover, where Mary did this in preparation for um, his burial again. And then, of course, in verse 13, Jesus makes a statement, Surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. So... At this point, when this woman now comes and she has this beautiful act of worship, I want you to understand that there were men, Judas and some of the other disciples, were indignant. They were indignant as far as this worship of this woman Mary unto the Lord. And now we're going to see here this next plotting as in verse 14 through 16, then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. We look at this and now we see here that Judas Iscariot is going to betray his master. He's going to betray the Lord. 
Now, I do want to share with you just one portion of Scripture here, and that's found in Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, I'm going to read verses 10 and 11, the key, of course, being verse 11. But in Mark 14, 10 and 11, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money, so he sought how he might conveniently betray him. It's interesting that this one woman does something that's amazing, an act of worship, and men are indignant. Now a man goes and seeks to do a thing that's horrible and wrong, and other men are glad. Isn't that just like what's happening when, when something is good, people call it bad. And when things are bad, people are happy and they call it good. And you can understand the difference. Why? Because light and darkness. And the darkness hates the light because its deeds are made manifest. And so they do everything they can to snuff out the light. And so you have Judas now, who's one of the twelve. And so he's now seeking an opportunity to betray his master. I want to take you to a portion of Scripture. We're going to jump back to the Old Testament for just a moment. And first I want to take you to Psalm chapter 41. And I want to read to you verse 9. Now we'll get to this in the, probably not in today's study, but in verse 23 of Matthew 26, he answers, says, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. We see that here, there's a portion where Jesus says, Okay, it's the one who's going to dip his, his bread with me. He's going to be the one who betrays me. And so when we look to this here, the betrayal of the Lord, what we see is this. In Psalm 41, verse 9, it says, Even my own familiar friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So we see here that David is declaring that there was a friend of his who betrayed him as well. In the same way as he now makes this beautiful proclamation that is going to be in the future, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted. Now remember when Judas goes and he betrays the Lord with a kiss. What does Jesus say? Friend. What is it that you want? And he calls him friend. And so we see, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, future sense of this prophecy, it deals with Judas Iscariot. In the past, with David, it dealt with a man by the name of Ahithophel. For those of you that are familiar with it, I want to give you a reminder. For those of you that do not know who Ahithophel is, I'm going to take you to 2 Samuel chapter 15. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, it opens up who Ahithophel is. I'm going to bounce around in 2 Samuel and try to give you a little bit of an understanding of who this friend of David is. Now, it opens up in 2 Samuel chapter 15 where Absalom begins his rebellion against David and where he wants to take over the kingdom from David. 
And in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 15, it says that Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor, from his city in Gilo. Now understand, there's a couple of things you need to know. That one, Ahithophel was the Gileonite, make a note of that, and he was David's counselor. He was a trusted advisor to David. Now, as he was this Gileonite, let me explain two things to you as far as who he is even further. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34, let me read it to you. It declares here of Ahithophel, 2 Samuel 23, verse 34, it goes, um, Eliaphet, the son of Ahasabael, the son of Maacathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileonite. So now I'm taking you to one more note here. We have Ahithophel, the Gileonite, who is the same one who was David's counselor, but he has a son by the name of Eliam. So, now you've got an understanding. You have Ahithophel, who is David's counselor, and he has a son by the name of Eliam. Now, if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, you're going to find something unique and interesting. We see here that in 2 Samuel chapter 11, that David sent and inquired about the woman whom he'd seen bathing on a rooftop when he should have gone out to war. And so he inquired about this woman, and someone said, Is it not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? Now you got a little bit of an idea of who this Ahithophel is. Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. Her father is Eliam, and then we see that here, after Eliam, and then um, his father, of course, is Ahithophel. So when you see here this man Ahithophel there with David, Absalom now calls this man Ahithophel, who was one of David's you know, trusted advisors, and he said, hey, um, I want you to be my advisor. Now what happens is when Ahithophel would speak, it would almost be as if God was speaking through him. And he was very wise in what he did. And so what happened was David had eventually, in verse 23 of 2 Samuel 15, it said, or verse 32 of 2 Samuel 15, now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountains, what, verse 31, then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And so he sends his own counselor. And he says in verse 34, But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will be now will also be your servant. 
and then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. So Hushai, David's friend, went to the city, and Absalom came to Jerusalem. So now we see here that Absalom begins to be that, uh, Ahithophel becomes the counselor to Absalom. Now what Ahithophel does is this. I want you to now turn to 2 Samuel chapter 17. And the reason I'm taking some time to do this isn't just to try to tell you, you know, why um, Bathsheba had a grandfather, but I want to really show you what the heart of Judas is. Because if that Psalm 41.9 now comes to this point as far as Judas's betrayal, there are some times where, depending on the scholar, depending on what, say that Judas wasn't that bad. He did it for good reasons. If you ever watch Jesus Christ Superstar, you'll realize that Judas was actually a good guy. He was trying to say, Jesus, just you got to make yourself known. Let me nudge you so that you can come in and be this conquering king that you're supposed to be and take out Rome. Well, in 2 Samuel 17, I want to read to you the first Four verses. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, now he's giving his counsel, now let me choose 12,000 men. Notice what he said. Now, not just, hey, why don't you choose 12,000 men? Remember how when Joseph gave his advice to Pharaoh, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. Here's Ahithophel's advice. Let me, note this, let me choose 12,000 men. And I will arise and pursue David. And I will come upon him while he's weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee. And I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you when all return except the man whom, oh yeah, you seek. Isn't that crazy? All this is, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to oh, to get the guy that, that you're looking for. You understand he's a little bit vehement here. And I can understand, look at what he did through his granddaughter. He, he had an affair with her, murdered her husband. All this is known. Ahithophel now comes and he says, and I'm going to bring back verse 3, all the people to you. When all return, accept the man whom you seek, and all the people will be at peace. And the same pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So I want you to see here now that eventually as Absalom gives this word, that Hushai kind of mixes up the council. And Absalom, rather than taking this God-breathed word, because if he would have let Ahithophel do this, it would have happened just as he said. But Hushai said, oh, no, no, you got to understand. Well, you, you corner your dad. He's going to be like this wild beast, and you don't want to get him at that point. And when what happened was this, in verse 14 of 17 of 2 Samuel, so Absalom and all the men of Israel said the advice of Hushai, the, the archive, is better than the advice of Ahithophel, for the Lord had purpose to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel, and to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. And then verse 23, when, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey, verse 23, arose and went home to his house, to his city, 
And then he put his household in order and he hanged himself and he died and he was buried in his father's tomb. Now it's interesting here that this one who betrays David, he goes and he hangs himself. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the one who betrays Jesus, eventually he also goes and hangs himself. So the reason I bring out this whole understanding of Ahithophel is this. Don't think that Judas has good intentions. There's something that's going on with Judas that I do believe, because when you look to Scripture to give you the background to Scripture, that what was happening here is David said, my own familiar friend and who I broke bread, as he says that in Psalm 41 verse 9, we begin to see here that yes, the, the, although he on one side to your face was a friend, you saw the rant that he gave in 2 Samuel 17. I will pursue him and I will do this and I'll kill him and then I'm going to get back the man whom, you know, I'm going to bring everybody back except the man whom you seek. Because, you know, I don't have a problem with him, but you do. And so understand Judas does have an issue with our Lord. And uniquely what we're seeing is this. As Judas has this area, Judas is this betrayer. And understand that if you're going to betray someone, it's not going to be an enemy. Do you realize that an enemy can't betray you? Because an enemy hates you anyways. It's one who to your face likes you, to your face says, I, I want this. And so you realize here that this whole area of betrayal now comes to say, wow, um, what is it that would cause someone to betray someone whom they look to and declare love towards, declare a relationship towards? And so you can't be betrayed if it's if someone hates you, if they're already an enemy. So it has to be someone close. And notice this, what happens. When Judas betrays the Lord, we see here in verse 15, he asked that statement, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? He's now looking to gain. It's not like, hey, you know, is there a way that I can help you so he can reveal himself? He knows what's happening. And he's wanting money to get it. And so they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. Now, when you look to this, um, in, the, in the Greek we realize that this is not a denarii. This is a shekel. And that's a difference. Understand what a shekel is. A shekel is a higher form of payment. And so you have a denarii, which would be, in a sense, uh, a Greek coin for the work. You have a shekel, which is a Hebrew coin. Now, if you have a skilled laborer, then you would give him a shekel. In other words, a shekel is worth about three denarii. So if here, if he has 30 pieces of silver and it's worth three denarii, it's, it's 900 or 90 denarii. So it, it's basically three months worth of wages that he's getting. And I'm wondering if he's thinking, wow, I'm going to get 90 denarii. I wonder if I should give it to the poor. You know, he's not worried about, oh, let me get some money for the poor. Now, just as a side note, because I think it's absolutely hilarious that he really does give it to the poor. 
In Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 3, where Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. So although he wanted the worship money to go to the poor, and when he really wanted it for himself, but he said, let's give it to the poor, his money actually went to the poor. you got to love how God brings about these beautiful ironies. And so as he gets this hundred denarii, we do realize that it is the price of blood. And so now you know that here, Judas hung himself, it was the price of blood, and he's willing to betray him. And I think it's interesting because so often you ask the question, and I, I because I'm a pastor, I've had to deal with it way too often, is the cost of betrayal. And, and when you see when a husband betrays his wife, and at what cost? What was, what was so worth, what did you find so valuable that you would betray the vow that you made? Or, or a wife to their husband when, when they have an affair. What was so valuable? What was the cost? What did you think was so valuable that you would betray your husband to pray the betray the vows that you made before God and the company that you would do this betrayal. And I find it interesting that, that we betray things all the time in our society and we look to this, but understand that with all the betrayals that we do, Judas, his betrayal is the price of blood. And so I do believe that when they realized it was the price of blood, that Judas also realizes it was the price of blood. He just came to the point to say, he was innocent, not guilty. And so at the point of betrayal, I do believe that Judas here has disagreements with the Lord. And so when, when he looks to how Jesus does the ministry, he just thinks ministry should be done different. He is actually in the camp of the religious elite because he goes to them and as they're looking to Jesus, why would you heal on the Sabbath? Like, why wouldn't I? When there's a need, you know, the, the need trumps those things. And so what happens is this. The religious leaders have a way of doing things. Jesus has a way of doing things. And in a sense, it's all a type of a work. But what makes it the will of God is when you're doing it what? In his way. So you, you, you can do a work, but if you don't do it in the way that God prescribes, you're simply doing what? You, you can still be in sin. So you can worship him with your mouth, but if your heart's far from him, you've done the work, but it's not in the way that God prescribes. And I think it's so important that when we look to the works that we do, there's a way that God prescribes it. And I think when you do it in that way, it becomes a worship. When you do it in that way that says, listen, here's an urgency and I'm okay with it. And, and I'm going to walk in this regardless of what people say or how people move. And so it's just one of those things where Judas has been 
not seeing things the way that Jesus does. In other words, when Mary goes and pours out the oil to worship him, Judas is like, why him? What makes him so special? Why would he do that? Now, there are some people who try to figure out why Judas would be bitter. Um, I don't know all the whys. All I know is that, that he was bitter. You know, when Jesus would go, he didn't take, you know, Judas, James, and John. It wasn't, he wasn't one of the upper three. And, and it would have been cool because it had been the three J's, you know, but it wasn't. It was Peter, James, and John, and always in that order. And it was never, oh yeah, and Judas. It was, he was never included in that. We don't know the whole reason of why Judas was at this thing, but we do know here that here he is a betrayal. And for this man who is betraying him, a good question is what causes um, someone to betray? What would cause someone to say, I'm, I'm willing to have you be to throw you under the bus, if you will, to, to see you destroyed. And, and, and I think what happens is when he doesn't give you what you want. Now understand, what does Judas want? We understand he's the treasurer. We understand that he used to take what was in there, and he wanted additional money. And Jesus wasn't concerned with money. He was concerned with what? With souls. With souls. With souls. And that was always what he was... He had no place to lay his head. And if Judas is concerned with money, what, with money comes luxury. With money comes all these other benefits. And Jesus, that wasn't his concern. His concern was people. And so we see here that, you know, what do you want more? And I find it interesting that what happens is when you, when you have this relationship... And then you say, I want something more. This relationship isn't enough. I want something more. And that's what happens with what? With affairs. You have a husband. He's married to a wife. And they have that relationship. But the husband wants what? I want something more. I want something different. I want something new. I want, I'm, I'm looking to be tantalized. And the same thing. When you have a husband, you have a wife, and they want to betray the vows and betray the marriage, they're looking for something more. They're looking for something different. And at this point... Judas is looking at Jesus in his ministry and saying, we need something more. I, I have a better idea of what your ministry should be than you do. And be careful because there's a lot of times where we as Christians, when God says, here's my heart, here's what I want, this is my word. And we, I got a better way to do this, Lord. There's a faster way, a better way, a way that, that doesn't have heartache, a way that doesn't have pain. And keep in mind that that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants us to take a shortcut. Remember what he did in the temptations to the Lord. He said, listen, all these kingdoms, all these kingdoms I will give to you. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. I will give them to you. There's a shortcut. I know you want to redeem everything back. I'll give it to you. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. And it was interesting, the enemy always wants us to take shortcuts. Always wants it. If you can avoid the pain, avoid the suffering, avoid looking you know, awkward to your co-workers by telling them of your relationship with me. There's always a way that you can avoid it. And that's the enemy. He always wants us to take a shortcut away from any suffering. And yet Jesus, when he was on the road to... Um, 
Emmaus, when, when the disciples says, oh, didn't you know that this was the path that led to my glory? So he began with Moses and all the, the, the prophets, and he declared everything about him and the crucifixion. He said, you know, did you not know that this was the path that I would have to glorify God? And when we betray, it's like, I don't want that path. I'll, I'll, I'll put your will aside, and I'm going to exalt my will for whatever gain that I can. And sometimes it's not financial gain. Sometimes it's a gain that says, I don't want to go through suffering. I don't want to go through pain. I don't want to go through, put, you know, fill in the blank. And then we say, I'm not going to go through this, so I'm going to push you aside and your will aside because I like the lies of the enemy better. And what's going to happen is you buy into the lies of the enemy, eventually you, like Judas, will realize, I betrayed innocence. I betrayed the one who loved me. I betrayed the one who gave himself for me. And I did it for what? And you realize it's not worth it. Because whatever gain you have, like juice, you throw it into the temple, it isn't worth it. And so we come to this portion of verse 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they count out to him 30 pieces of silver. It's interesting that Judas here has an idea of what it's worth. And yet, they're the ones who dictate it. Now, I don't know if he's thinking, man, I could get a lot more than 30. I should get at least 300 denarii worth. You know, what can I get for this? Not simply 90 days. Let's get, you know, 300. And, and he doesn't get to dictate what he gets. And understand that so often, and I do believe that this is a lie of the enemy, the lie of the enemy says, if you betray him for this, it's going to be wonderful. If you betray him for this, it's going to be amazing. If you betray him, you're going to have all this. And then the reality is, it's not what you think. It just isn't what you think it was going to be. And so we see here that they counted out. He said, what will you give me? And they're the one that dictates the price. They're the ones that dictates his betrayal sum. And from that time on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And now we see there's only one thing in his mind. No longer is it worship. Now it's, I'm, I'm, I'm on the side here of the chief priest. I'm on the side here of them. And he's just looking for an opportunity and looking for an opportunity and looking for an opportunity. And, and I think what happens is we begin to realize there does come a time where there's a line. And within that line, that when you cross it, you know, in the upper room, Satan is going to now come into the heart of Judas and he's gone at that point. But there's a line that you don't want to cross, a line that you don't want to cross, a line that you don't want to cross. And I think it's important as Christians to do this. Always take your direction of walking towards Jesus, towards his will, towards his love. Don't ever stand or turn your back and say, I'm going to back off a little bit. Um, we've talked about it before, how the Christian walk is sort of like going up a down escalator. You could be walking and walking around, but everything's pulling you down. The enemy's pulling you down. The world's pulling you down. Your own flesh is pulling you down. And if it seems in your Christian walk like you're getting nowhere understand you're still walking 
because everything's pulling you down. And so just understand, if you feel like, I've been walking, I'm getting nowhere, don't worry. You're still walking. You're still moving forward. You're in the right direction. And I think this is what's important as we come to this area of seeing here how Judas goes and betrays the Lord. He has a better idea of what God's plan should be than what God's plan is. And in a finite mind, how often do we have that same mindset? Lord, I got a better idea of what your plan should be and how it should look. And we can take shortcuts here. We, we, we can work around this. And keep in mind, be careful, because like here with Judas, you don't want to come to a place where there's a line that you now step over. And we're, you know, like, okay, well, I've done it. Now is it too late? And understand, I'm going to share this last piece with you. It's never too late. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And, and what happens is when he says that he's able to save to the uttermost, no matter how far you've walked away from the Lord, when you come to the point of coming to yourself and saying, I, I need to come back to God, I need to repent, and I'm, I'm going to start following him. You turn, and he's there. It's not like you've got to turn and walk all the way back. That's not where God is. He's been following you, following you, following, seeking after that lost sheep. As soon as you turn, hey, my sheep, let's celebrate. I found him. Bring him back into the fold. That's God, and that's his heart. So there's a warning here. Be careful that you don't think that you know better than God and realize I can do this and there's a better price to me, a cost for me. And, and so, but that will always be the cost of betrayal. You'll always want to think you're going to have it on this and it, it's more. And so we're going to pause here because this is the preparation now as everyone is prepping for the Lord's death. Um, we see Jesus was prepping as he prophesied and is telling his disciples don't worry, I know what's going to happen. I am going to be crucified. I got everything in control. You have the leaders who are prepping for his death as they're plotting to put him to death. You have Mary who is prepping for his death to say, I'm going to worship you. And there's no cost that is too much. And, and no amount of ridicule or anything is going to prevent me from worshiping. And then you have Judas who is prepping for his death, receiving the blood money in order to say, listen, um, this is betrayal. And I do believe that his mindset here is that same mindset of 2 Samuel um, 17, where he's got to go, he's got to go. And then eventually he realizes, wow, I blew it. I absolutely blew it. So um, good warnings for us to say, what are you going to do in preparation of his death? And realize that he's already died and I'm going to... Either say, I don't like your plan, I don't want your plan, or I'm going to be like a Mary and say, oh, I'm going to worship. Because of what you've done, my heart is to worship. And, and there's, you're worth everything. I don't see what you've done, the preparation of his death as being worth less. I see it as being a worth. And everything that I can do in preparation to honor you and to worship you, it's so worth it. Amen. Mm -hmm. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for just this passage. And see as they're preparing, Lord, for your death. What an incredible pointer. And again, Lord, I'm just so grateful, so grateful 
that none of this took you by surprise. Men couldn't rush your death. They couldn't, they couldn't postpone your death. They couldn't wait till after the feast. You, you know, you know, you've got it perfectly planned. And as your life was perfectly planned, thank you, Lord, that your word declares that our life is perfectly planned. There's nothing that's going to rush it. Nothing's going to hold it back when it's our time. You have it perfectly worked out. And so we're trusting in you. And as we're, we're waiting for you to fulfill your plan in our life, just let us worship. Let us worship. Let us come and sit before you, draw close to you, and worship. Regardless of what people say, regardless of how people act, whether they think they want to be indignant to how we respond to you, Lord. Worshiping, declaring hallelujah, saying amen, raising our hands in worship. Regardless of whether they're indignant or not, we are going to worship. Because you are worthy. You are just worthy. Continue in our hearts to yours, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. Amen.